In today's .01 conversation, Aaron Cohen sits down with Martin Coring, head of the Economist World Ocean Initiative, to talk about how reinvigorating the ocean economy will lead to sustained and equitable economic growth the world over. With previous efforts managing initiatives in global food distribution and women's entrepreneurship, Martin intimately understands the link between business and sustainability in a way that few others do. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's Aaron Cohen with the .01 podcast. I'm here with Martin Coring, who's the head of the Global uh, Ocean Initiative, uh, which is part of the Economist Group. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's begin by telling everyone what the Global Ocean Initiative is and, and why it was conceived. Yeah, so um, the World Ocean Initiative really is, is part of the Economist Group because we think at the Economist Group that we can bring together stakeholders. I mean, with the convening power of the Economist Group uh, is, is well known. We have the World Ocean Summit, which is the largest global ocean event. It brings together the policymakers, business, civil society to discuss the key issues really that uh, are important to, uh, to make the ocean economy more sustainable. And obviously, we have the research and analytical skills as well in the Economist Intelligence Unit to uh, analyze what is happening in the ocean economy. And, and we do have the media reach as a, as a global media brand uh, to amplify the research. So bringing all this together uh, is an ideal platform to, to launch an initiative like this. And we have been around since 2018. Um, and obviously, we work closely with the World Ocean Summit team uh, to bring the stakeholders together to, to build this community around business, policy, civil society, uh, to really make sure that we can imagine uh, a more sustainable ocean economy and that we can uh, bring bold thinking, new partnerships together uh, to, to um, develop the ocean economy more sustainable. It's sort of somewhat shocking to think that this community had not historically come together to really work on these initiatives. I mean, we've had a climate change problem for decades and it feels like you are the convening power and it's relatively new that this community is coming together. What do you attribute that to? The ocean economy, in a way, has been neglected. I mean, you know about the sustainable development goals that have been around for a couple of years. And actually, SDG 14, which is the, uh, the goal that is uh, about life below water, which covers the ocean economy, is one of the most neglected ones. I mean, people uh, think about, you know, as you said, climate, food, health, and all these topics when they think about sustainable development. But the ocean, in a way, has been neglected, although every second breath we take is from the ocean, because the ocean is crucial for uh, you know our climate and our health. I mean, without the ocean, we wouldn't wouldn't be able to survive. I mean, the, the food we get from the ocean is absolutely crucial. I mean, the OECD uh, did a study in 2016 that estimated that uh, already in 2010 the uh, the ocean economy was worth 1.5 trillion US dollars, and uh, that's already uh, about three percent or so of the global economy. And by 2030, it was uh, it was projected to double. Uh, to three trillion, and it's al it's already providing full time employment for lots of people, and it, it will. Uh, I mean, the estimate was that it would provide full time employment for you know up to forty million people, and it's already a, a hugely important for for many countries, not only small island nations, but uh, many developed uh, countries as well. So the opportunity has been has been there, and from from a business perspective, uh, the the opportunity has been growing, particularly because uh, th there are so many needs now to address the climate crisis and the ocean has been neglected as a solution to the climate crisis. Um, so for example, in terms of the 
the food potential. I mean, the ocean could actually provide six times more food than it provides today if we, for example, make aquaculture uh, more sustainable. Uh, it can also uh, help us to solve some of the energy problems that we have in the world uh, because it can provide um, energy through uh, offshore wind, tidal and wave energy. And it can also provide a solution to climate change through, uh, for example, um, seaweed, mangroves and coral reefs are a great way of uh, both protecting us from the, the consequence of, of, of climate change. So when you say that we could have innovation in aquaculture, what specifically do you mean first and then why is it not happening? We have overexploited the ocean so much and because the the high seas are basically a, a, a territory that isn't governed very well so when we talk about aquaculture we mean the fi fish farms so basically the purpose of the farms is really for human consumption and thereby being able to control how much is consumed and being much more purposeful um, and we know from the from the data that uh, Aquaculture could provide two-thirds of all the seafood for human consumption by 2030. It, it has already overtaken wild fisheries as the source for seafood. And we know that it's also better for the planet. I mean, we know that red meat, for example, is, is, is bad for, for the climate because of the land it takes, because of the, uh, the emissions caused by you know, methane, exactly. Why isn't aquaculture more popular than it is already? What's the challenge with growing aquaculture? It's basically because it, it requires a head start investment. There are new venture capital funds and, and impact funds that are now increasingly looking into alternative fish feed. And once that problem is solved, the, the unsustainable fish feed, then aquaculture is really going to take off. Is that venture capital industry that you're talking about, is that mature around the world or is that largely the U.S. market, because historically the U.S. is way in front in terms of capital, early stage capital formation. Um, but what are, what are you seeing globally? You're right that the, the U.S. has a lot of venture funds. There's a lot of interest now uh, globally. There are increasingly funds that are interested in this kind of thing. And they are not just U.S.-based. I mean, for example, there is uh, Mirova Natural Capital, and they recently uh, invested in um, a marine protected area in the Dominican Republic, for example. There was kind of a combination of private and public funding. So these funds, they are not just there to conserve, but they are really there to restore and to, to bring uh, benefits to other sectors. What are you seeing at the World Ocean Initiative in terms of uh, renewable energy uh, in the ocean? In Europe, there is this huge need um, to bring renewable energy because the EU has actually decided to become net zero uh, by, tw by uh, you know the, by t by 2050, I think. So there is this 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 need to uh, make sure that you know the different industries become uh, you know become more sustainable. And I think for offshore wind, there is this need to to produce something like 450 gigawatts of offshore wind just in Europe by 2050 to meet the, the, the global targets um, the, under the Paris Agreement. And there's obviously huge advantages to offshore wind because, you know, you, you don't need uh, the land, you, you have the social advantages uh, over onshore 
production and so on. And and um, there's also the potential to integrate this with green hydrogen, for example. And this is uh, related to the uh, decarbonization of the shipping industry. The shipping industry is also needs to decarbonize. And while doing that, they need to get uh, more sustainable fuels. And they have been running on these unsustainable fuels, heavy fuel oil and these kind of things. And hydrogen is one of the fuels that uh, has been um, has been touted as, as a potential. And uh, offshore wind can be combined with uh, green hydrogen manufacturing. So there is that pot potential as well. And on top of that, uh, there is there is of course the wave and tidal uh, opportunity, which uh, is is obviously not as big as the offshore wind opportunity. But there are all these innovations that uh, make this a very attractive industry. Talk a little bit more about wave and tidal. Yeah, it's 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 obviously a growing uh, interest. I mean, there, there is interest. I mean, for example, Canada, the U.S., Spain, and Australia, and some other governments have all um, announced plans to look, to look at uh, wave and tidal. Um, and the, the market is obviously still small, but it's 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 growing, and it's also um, yeah, it's, it's it's an untapped it's an untapped potential. Is any wave and tidal energy getting onto the grids in either Europe or the U.S. yet? There, there, are, there are there are pilot projects, um, uh, but they are obviously it's not at all at the scale of offshore wind. Uh, the real challenge is is to reduce technology costs so that they can compete with other renewable energy. Uh, but but this is how it all started. I mean, this is how other renewable energy is sought. When you look out at the participants who uh, attend your events, how many of these people are, are in the renewables category, or I should say maybe the energy category? versus the other key categories of the World Ocean Summit. So it, the, the good thing about the World Ocean Summit is that it attracts such a diverse group of people. And, and we have these different industry tracks, which include also plastics, for example, uh, and, and shipping and fisheries. And energy is, is one of the key areas we're looking at. So uh, we really try to be uh, inclusive. And, and it's, it's an important part of the uh, of the summit. And as you said, um, we, we're trying to be forward looking. So even though wave and tidal is currently not such an important sector, it, it will increasingly become an important sector. So we, had, we are including that into our conversations in, in, the, in the different energy conversations. Talk a little bit about the trajectory you've had and why you jumped at the opportunity to, to had this initiative. I have always had an interest in sustainability, and I I worked previously at the Economist Group uh, on the Food Sustainability Index, which is all about bringing together um, the economic, social, and environmental drivers for food system change. So, for example, looking at um, uh, looking at what drives prosperity. I mean, looking at sustainable investment in food systems, the new production methods, uh, transport and infrastructure, and these kind of things, and the huge issue of food loss and waste, for example. But also looking at how food sustainability really is part of um, of nurturing communities and things like, for example, including women and youth in the development of of food and production of food and education, nutrition patterns, these kind of things. So I've always been fascinated in these systemic conversations of the Food Sustainability Index, which uh, has, has a huge impact, actually won the World Media Awards in 2018. And, and um, this was really brought me into that sustainability conversation. We, we're doing a lot of work at the Economist Group on sustainability. We also did something for uh, UNOPS, uh, the operational arm of the UN on uh, sustainable infrastructure, which we launched at uh, Davos and on sustainable procurement practices, which again, we launched at, at Davos. So I've, I've worked on, on many different projects related to sustainability in the past. And it, it's just a natural fit for me to, to then go and head the World Ocean Initiative.
From land to ocean is a pretty abrupt transition. Can you juxtapose the two experiences for us? Yeah, sure. And, and I think it, it's actually not such a radical transition because most of the issues we see in the ocean are based on land problems. I mean, for example, if you look at the plastic pollution, I mean, uh, really uh, Blue Planet, which is kind of this series of films with David Attenborough uh, brought brought to the, uh, to the general public. Really, if you want to tackle something like plastic pollution, we have to go to to, to the land-based industries. We have to go and, uh, and, and talk to the producers to redesign their products, to make them uh, ready for reuse and recycle. We have to go and, um, and, and change our waste infrastructure. Uh, I mean, it, it's just incredible how the, the 10 largest rivers or so are responsible for something like 90% or so of all the pollution in, in the ocean. So we need to go and see what, why is this happening at the source? I mean, why are these waste management systems not working? on land and likewise uh, if we look at seafood a lot of the seafood production is moving on land uh, because of the aquaculture as we said you know you can if you can produce if you can have a fish farm that can basically fulfill your needs you do not need to go to the ocean to fish you can you can do this land-based you can do it uh, you don't have to go to the ocean and likewise lab-grown food is such an enormous opportunity now. Uh, th th there's lots of interest in producing seafood, across the Seines, for example, in, in the lab. We recently had our Women and the Ocean Changemaker program that highlighted one of the winners is producing, uh, is starting a, you know, a new venture that is producing seafood in the lab, which is basically uh, health-friendly because there's no need for antibiotics, there's no contamination by pathogens, uh, there is, it's sustainable because it's energy efficient, it's carbon neutral, and also it's economically viable because uh, the technology will lead to new um, new ideas, new jobs, and so on. So actually, it's not such a day and night kind of black and white type issue. It's actually very much land and, and ocean are very linked. When you look out and say, what do I really want to happen with these next several cycles of convening and publishing and, and production and gathering, where do you hope to see... Uh, the ocean economy be just, let's say, by 2025. 2050 is so far away. Where do you think the key trends will be uh, over the next five years? I think there have to be several key developments. I mean, one is, for example, that we need to bring this blue finance conversation to the next level. Um, and we already have this, as we said, we know we have these kind of venture funds that are increasingly interested in. There's also a really fascinating development around uh, ocean accounts to really make, make sure that, you know, GDP doesn't really track the ocean economy. So there's this movement to integrate the ocean into how we account for the economy as a whole. Um, there's also the... Uh, you know these new players in the blue uh, blue finance space to really bring private finance into the conversation. We in the Economist Group, we, we really want to help that transition. So it's not just philanthropy, development aid. It's actually the venture capitalists and the uh, you know the the private capital to to get excited about. That. Obviously, there's tons of project finance mm. in construction progress projects or in renewable energy projects. I mean, renewable energies are not a they're not a venture capital financed business. They're often a project financed business. Do we not see that in the blue economy? Yes, and particularly because we have uh, a lot of the, the big 
global uh, development banks are already interested in these kind of things. I mean, you have the European Investment Bank, the Asian Development Bank, and so on. And, and there's a lot of project finance that's coming coming from these kind of big players, and they are uh, basically helping to incentivize private capital to get get involved. So th that that is already happening. You're right for for energy, which is already a big business. But then we talked about you know aquaculture. We talked about uh, ecotourism is, for example, another area that that uh, is attracting increasing interest. But now with the pandemic, obviously, uh, it, it's come to a halt. But actually, 73% of people that were recently surveyed, I think, with Booking.com, they said that they want to stay in eco-friendly accommodation. So once the pandemic restrictions ease further, people will be much more aware. And I think the pandemic, in a way, or as bad as it has been, has made people more aware of the interconnectedness of you know us and our uh, environment, our ecosystems, and how we have treated um, have treated our environment. And, and ecotourism is another area of you know of interest that will attract um, financing and, and interest by consumers, business, and finance. Martin, where are you sitting right now? What city are you in? Uh, at the moment in London. I asked you the question about London because I, I, I think we have to give you the opportunity to talk about the differences between Europe, uh, particularly the EU and their environmental policies relative to North American countries, APAC. I mean, it's it's really interesting that you mentioned that because our our audience is 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 very global. I mean, we've really like almost like a third split between you know, North America, uh, Asia Pacific, and and Europe. Of course, the the U.S. government is not is not interested in the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not it's not the businesses uh, that are seeing the change. I mean, for example, the rise of ESG, you know, the environmental social governance investing and impact investment has is, is really a global phenomenon and often spearheaded by U.S. Um, U.S. Uh, funds, and we don't necessarily see more enthusiasm for that in in europe um and obviously it all depends on the political side of things but the enthusiasm for um making more of the ocean economy is not just a kind of a european phenomenon uh, there was for example a poll by responsible investor recently nine out of ten investors are interested in blue finance for example and that's not just that's not just a european or or asia pacific phenomenon that that's also very much uh, uh, in north america we, we fundamentally believe that it's industry that's gotten us into this problem and industry that's going to get us out of this problem. Is that the filter you use as you think about programming at uh, the World Ocean Initiative? There was recently a study that's really interesting uh, now that we're talking about the um, you know sustainability and profitability. A study uh, from Oxford University that compared uh, the kind of the green stimulus projects with traditional stimulus. And we know that in 2008, we had a similar kind of crisis. Actually, we in the Economist Intelligence Unit, we actually expect this crisis to be deeper in terms of the economic impact um, than the 2008 crisis. But this study from Oxford University showed that green projects create more jobs, deliver higher short-term returns per dollar. Uh, they lead to increased long-term cost savings compared to we, with kind of traditional kind of carbon incentive kind of infrastructure investments. And, and this really chimes with other studies. I mean, recently the high-level panel for the uh, sustainable ocean economy looked at uh, investment returns from investing in some of the solutions we discussed, like for example, wind energy, uh, aquaculture, and these kind of things. And they found that every dollar invested 
invested in building a sustainable ocean economy could yield at least $5 in return. A lot of people don't know that these investments are highly profitable. So bringing in this perspective that doing these kind of things is not just a nice green kind of thing to enhance your reputation. It's actually hard cash. It's actually a profitable business. Fundamentally, it feels like people think they're making a choice between green and profits when in reality, if they chose green, they might be more profitable. How do you wrestle with that issue? It takes some time to take investments out of funds away from carbon intensive industries. I mean, uh, I think the, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund did, did an incredible thing by basically saying we're no longer going to invest in in oil and gas and, and other carbon intensive industries when the fund itself is based on a lot of oil revenue i mean so the <laughs> that, that's it and, and those kind of um in a way contradictions will be highlighted a lot by companies that want to make that transition uh, there are lots of energy companies that are saying we're now uh, we're now investing in wind we're now investing in all these alternative energies but at the same time their core business model remains reliant on oil and gas so it is a transition but take time and it will take these kind of signals from investment funds from the big funds it will take it will take the media including the economist group to highlight that that this transition is happening and it can't be stopped. When you look out on the, the economy, where do you see 0.01 company possibilities that are rising up that could be interesting? You know, I think of Tesla as a 0.01 company. They've changed how the world perceives electric vehicles and electric vehicles are good uh, for the sustainability movement. What, where do you see interesting 0.01 companies? Looking at the smaller companies and the startups is, is really interesting because it's not just the, the bigger ones. I mean, from when we worked in the food sustainability project, we found so many interesting uh, examples of like local uh, initiatives that turned into profitable business and then can be scaled up. I mean, for example, we looked at uh, in Kenya, there's this, this company that is called Sun Culture that uh, uses solar-powered irrigation technology used by smallholder farmers. So there are all these kind of innovations. And obviously for that, you need to have you, first of all, you need to highlight them and then you need to provide them with the guidance and the, um, and the financial support to scale up. And the big companies are there to provide these kind of examples of where you can be at the very end. But it is these, it's the culmination of all these smaller initiatives and the financing that goes into them that will ultimately make, make a big difference. You know, Martin, it's, it's, it's really fun to spend some time with you because... What you hear about are all these fantastic um, uh, uh, public sector interventions that are happening around the world. And, you know, none of those will be American, you know, over the last several years. And it's been tough being a part of this country, but it's, it's actually quite inspiring to hear all these other things that are going on around the world. I'm so glad Ecuador, as opposed to uh, the U.S., is leading the way. On, uh, on reforestation. Um, I, I wanted to give you a chance to tell everyone what's coming up on, at the World Ocean Initiative, both in the fall and as you lead up to what will hopefully be an event in, in March. What's on the horizon uh, for you guys? 
Yeah, so it's, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, as, as a combination of things that we do, I mean, obviously we have this report that is freely available on our website as well, woi.economist.com uh, slash 2030. And you can, you can download this report. And many of the things we discussed today uh, are, are really a kind of, uh, uh, in a way, uh, uh, mentioned in that report in much more detailed examples like the one in Ecuador uh, uh, are mentioned in, in that report and highlighting some of the initiatives around the world that are making a difference. But obviously, we're also going, and you mentioned that we're going to uh, Lisbon. Uh, we have this webinar series that you can find details on our website on as well. But you know, we're planning to go to Lisbon for for the uh, eighth annual uh, World Ocean Summit. Uh, we are hoping to uh, feature 250 speakers. We already have uh, 100 or so confirmed. You can check our website to see who is speaking. I mean, uh, as as I mentioned earlier from from the major policymakers to the to the business leaders and to civil society leaders all coming together and we're hoping to uh, have about 2000 participants it's going to be a quite a large scale event obviously depending on what's happening with the with the covid restrictions and so on but the focus would really be uh, first of all on these high level conversations around policy making that is crucial uh, that that's in our plenary sessions but what, what we're trying to do next year is really expanding this agenda to bring these industry focused sessions and we discuss uh, Aaron as well many of the industry opportunities I mean we have six industry tracks uh, we have uh, aquaculture which we discussed in detail and fishing energy plastics shipping and tourism and alongside the uh, along these six tracks we bring business leaders together with the policymakers and civil society to discuss what the best solutions for the sustainable ocean economy would be and we also have an expo as well where some of the startups and other companies can uh, can showcase what they are doing to build a sustainable ocean economy so we're very excited uh, to, to invite you all to, to join us in Lisbon. And obviously, please uh, also visit our website, which is freely uh, accessible um, to access some of the content that we're producing. But um, thanks a lot, Aaron, for providing uh, this opportunity to discuss with you these topics. It's been very fascinating. Martin, it has been a great pleasure to have you. You are clearly an expert in these areas, and, it, and it, it, it's really fun to learn about. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much to Martin for making the time to speak with us. To find out more information on the work he is doing with the World Ocean Initiative, you can find them online at woi.economist.com. You can also find Martin on social media at Economist Martin. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to Point One Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find us on Twitter at Point One Podcast and on the web at climate.hellotherma.com. Today's podcast was brought to you by Therma, a smart refrigeration management company. Find them on the web at hellotherma.com. Thank you.